You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. So we find ourselves in a market that is having a lot of demand. We have seen a lot of customer growth and companies that are just finding having cyber insurance either one extremely useful for them because of the protection and coverage that they get, but also because of all the tooling that we provide when it comes to the policy. Or number two, we're also starting to see that a lot of companies are dependent on having cyber insurance to be able to close some contracts uh, with other customers that they, they have as well. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben discusses a recent ruling from the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals that deals with warrantless wiretapping. I look at attempts to hold AI more accountable. And later in the show, Tiago Henrique from cyber insurance provider Coalition. He's here to discuss the rapidly changing landscape of cyber insurance. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. All right, Ben, before we jump into our stories this week, we've got some feedback from a listener uh, named Chris. And uh, Chris writes in and says, Hi, Dave. Hi, Ben. Listening to the Maximizing Good Online episode and Ben's comment about the constitutional right to privacy caught my ear. Is there an actual right? When I did my undergrad in information assurance, the law and privacy class both stated we don't have a constitutional right to privacy. The closest we had was Chief Justice Louis Bandice's opinion on the right to be let alone. The last law class I took in 2017 was for grad school, but I don't recall a change to the right of privacy. Yes, GDPR and COPA came out, as well as a few other states, but I don't recall a right to privacy. Did I miss something? Ben? Did Chris miss something? Great question, Chris. Uh, You did not miss anything. Um, You are uh, absolutely right to ask this very important question. There is not an explicit right to privacy in the Constitution. Uh, It's not in there. There are a couple of ways in which Supreme Court justices have found an implicit right to privacy within the Constitution. Hmm. The most commonly cited way comes from a 1960s opinion, Griswold v. Connecticut, which was about birth control among married couples. Hmm. And in that case, Justice Douglas said that you can infer a right to privacy in the Constitution from a penumbra of various constitutional amendments. Hmm. So the First Amendment right of freedom of association even mentions the Third Amendment. No one ever talks about that, but that's about <laughs> not having soldiers quartered in your house. Okay. 
Fourth Amendment, obviously, your right against unreasonable searches and seizures. Fifth Amendment, right against self-incrimination. And the Ninth Amendment, which says that just because a right isn't listed in the Constitution doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Hmm. So if you take what he referred to as a penumbra, uh, you know, the variety of lights of indications from those amendments, you can infer a constitutional right to privacy. That's how he justified it in that case. And that case was the precedent case for Roe v. Wade, where Hmm. the court said that because of that right to privacy, people have a uh, right to an abortion, at least during the first trimester, pre-viability. The other way in which the Supreme Court has recognized a right to privacy is something called substantive due process. So the 14th Amendment says the state can't take away your liberty without due process of law. Most scholars think that that due process clause was more about procedural protections. You know, you can't put somebody in prison without giving them a fair trial. Mm. But some justices have interpreted that as granting substantive rights. So as part of due process, you can't deprive people of liberty if you are are depriving them of something that's so fundamental to to our system, fundamental to our system of, of ordered liberty. And some justices have imputed the right to privacy as one of those core liberties that can't be taken away by the state. There are a lot of scholars, both on the uh, right and the left, who are very critical of this notion of substantive due process. Justice Thomas on the court, uh, his reason for waking up in the morning is to attack substantive <laughs> due process. He he hates it. Okay. Um, so I realize it's a very long answer to the question. The Supreme Court has recognized that there is not an explicit right of privacy in the Constitution, but there is, they've recognized, an implicit right to privacy that you can deduct from other constitutional provisions. And mm. that's that's where it lies today. Okay. So— As we record this, what's going on with the Supreme Court and Roe v. Wade is not having it explicitly laid out in the Constitution. Does that potentially put it in peril? Does that that mean it's at the whims of the the current set of Supreme Court justices? Absolutely. Um, I mean, they – it is well within their purview to – define the right of privacy as they think it should be defined or to, to have it not exist in the Constitution at all. There is now a majority that certainly disfavors substantive due process, but, you know, it's very possible they also disfavor the implicit right of privacy from the Griswold case. I think Supreme Court justices would be very reluctant to overturn Griswold, which gives people the right to purchase birth control. Mm. Um, I don't see that happening in the short term. But, you know, I think what critics of the the court's you know, current thinking on abortion rights. I think most legal scholars think that they're going to significantly curtail abortion rights next year. Mm-hmm. The thinking is that that's going to start a slippery slope. If the right of privacy isn't protected in that case, that same logic could apply to other cases that don't have to do with abortion and mm-hmm. can cut against this Griswold precedent. So to answer your question, absolutely, the right is in jeopardy due to the majority on the Supreme Court right now. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, to our listener, Chris, thank you for sending in that thoughtful question. Uh, We would love to hear from you. If you have a question for us, and by us, I mean mostly Ben, uh, you can send it to caveat at thecyberwire.com. All right, Ben, let's jump into our stories here. Why don't you kick things off for us? Sure. Uh, So this message comes from a Dave Bittner in my uh, (laughs) Twitter DMs, alerted me to this case. Also saw it in the news. Sounds like a handsome guy. He's a wonderful, (laughs) handsome fellow. Um, And he alerted me to an ACLU article 
about a recent Tenth Circuit opinion, hmm. the United States v. Mutteroff, and this has to do with foreign intelligence surveillance, a topic near and dear to my heart. Hmm. So prior to this case, two other circuits had examined Section 702 of the FISA Amendments Act. That section allows the government to compel internet service providers or companies that control the internet backbone to turn over the electronic communications of non-U.S. persons reasonably believed to be outside of the United States. Hmm. But one thing that happens under that program is what's called incidental collection. So if you, a U.S. person, U.S. citizen, somebody who's here legally, is talking to a terrorist target overseas and that information happens to be collected— the government doesn't need to secure a warrant in order to obtain that communication and could therefore, you know, charge you criminally if they find something incriminating. Two courts, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, in separate cases have held that Section 702 does not violate the Fourth Amendment as it relates to uh, incidental collection. So in both of those cases, you had people who were charged with crimes. Mm-hmm. The evidence that led to them being charged came from incidental collection under Section 702. They were talking to the wrong bad guys, hmm. uh, and their communications were being monitored. Mm-hmm. And in both cases, those courts held that a person doesn't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in those communications, largely because of what's called the incidental overhear doctrine. Um, and this comes from a, a long line of cases where— if law enforcement is is you know trying to surveil a suspected criminal and that criminal is conversing with somebody else mm-hmm. and that other person incriminates themselves, that's fair game for a future criminal proceeding, if mm. that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Now, in this case where we're talking about international surveillance, let's say I'm the person who's communicating with the, the overseas person of interest. Right. Right. Is the information that the feds are gathering, is that only from my conversations with that person? Or is it that the fact that I've communicated with that person at all, does that now make me a person of interest? It's both. Okay. Um, so they both can, they can listen and read the content of those communications, but certainly just the fact that you were talking to that target yeah. could be suspicious. And what they do is then they go secure a traditional FISA warrant, which you can get for U.S. persons. That allows the government— to surveil the communications of a of a U.S. person. I see. So it no longer has to be incidental. In this case, this guy, uh, Munaroff, was communicating with an overseas terrorist target, somebody who was part of an organization that our State Department has determined as a terrorist organization, the Islamic Jihad Union. Mm-hmm. They caught him talking to somebody involved with that conversation. They got a traditional FISA warrant, realized he was providing uh, material support to terrorist groups. He was charged. Munaroff says that he should have a reasonable expectation of privacy in this information. He challenges Section 702 as it applies in his case, but also what's called a facial challenge, meaning he thinks that this law is per se unconstitutional Hmm. um, because it allows for the warrantless collection of U.S. persons' communications. What the court decided here is that Section 702 is constitutional for a couple of reasons. First, they mention, like those other courts, the incidental overhear doctrine. If the government has a legal reason to be surveilling somebody overseas, as they as they do here, Section 702 allows them to surveil overseas targets, and they happen to pick up a U.S. person, that counts as incidental over here. Mm. Generally, you don't have a expectation of privacy. 
when you're talking to to somebody else, you have to accept the risk that the government could be listening in on that person's conversations. They also brought up a, a really interesting point saying that this invokes what's called the plain view doctrine. Hmm. So let's say the cops suspect you of dealing drugs in your house. They get a warrant to search your house. Right. When they're searching your house, they happen to find illegal firearms. Even though they weren't looking for those illegal firearms, if those firearms were within plain view, that's fair game under the Fourth Amendment. They don't mm-hmm. need to obtain a separate warrant. Mm-hmm. What the court is saying here is this is sort of like a plain view search. You know, the government had a legal reason to be surveilling this overseas target. And what presented itself in plain view was this U.S. person communicating with the overseas target. And Hmm. so that information can be collected. I think that's a kind of a stretch, in my opinion. Hmm. I would have just stuck to the incidental overhear doctrine. But it is certainly an interesting argument. So the ACLU and others uh, take issue with this. Absolutely. What What are their concerns? So there are a couple significant concerns. One is after these communications are collected, they do go into a database. Uh, This database is searchable. If you are searching it for non-criminal purposes, then a warrant is not required. So there could be warrantless searches of this database, of these communications that have been collected. Hmm. They're also concerned that this is a backdoor search method. Even though the law explicitly says you can't target an overseas person in order to collect the communications of a U.S. person, the ACLU and other groups are suspicious that the government is using Section 702 as an end around. Mm. Let's say you have a hunch that a U.S. person is communicating with terrorists, but you don't have any proof. Go overseas. Try and find a terrorist that they're communicating with. Listen to that person's communications. And then you might be able to to, uh, intercept the U.S. person's communications. Hmm. So that's certainly the nature uh, of their concern. And then, you know, generally, once you allow programs like this, they see it as a slippery slope where we're just accepting this vast uh, electronic surveillance state for national security purposes. Generally, in order for a search to be reasonable, courts do a reasonableness analysis where they weigh the government's interests against the private individual's interests. And previous case law has said that, you know, countering terrorism is the utmost interest that the government has. Mm. You know, if you Mm -hmm. picture a scale, you're putting a giant bag of pennies on that security (laughs) side. Right. On the other side is the individual's interest here. And what these court cases seem to indicate is that the individual interests here aren't that particularly strong because they are talking with terrorists And because, you know, Section 702 has a bunch of procedural protections. The program itself and the so-called minimization procedures have to be approved every year by the FISA court. I think groups like the ACLU and others see that as very unsatisfactory. The fact that you can kind of invoke national security and then have this uh, advantage in a reasonableness inquiry uh, in our court system. Uh, So I think that's that's deeply concerning to them. Hmm. What's your take? I, I'm concerned about it, too. I mean, I, I do think there's the potential for abuse under Section 702, especially when you know that these communications go into a database. In terms of the legal analysis, I mean, I agree that incidental overhear uh, applies here. If you're going to apply incidental overhear when, you know, you're trying to surveil a mob boss and that mob guy talks to some underling, they didn't realize that guy was actually part of the mafia. Mm-hmm. And you don't need a separate search warrant to to get evidence on that new guy. I think that makes sense. And I think that makes sense 
in this context. But I can also understand why people are concerned that, you know, this could be a, a method for backdoor searches and an end around on Fourth Amendment protections. The other, you know, concern here, just from a practical level, is we now have three separate circuits who have upheld the constitutionality of Section 702. There has been no circuit split. So if you're the Supreme Court, you're looking at what's happening, you know, at the circuit level and saying, well, it doesn't really seem that there's any real dispute here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All these lower judges, you know, seem to agree that Section 702, as applied, is constitutional. So, you know, what interest would it be for us to take it up? Right. So I think that means that the Supreme Court probably doesn't have interest in adjudicating Section 702. And, you know, this this program is going to be upheld for the foreseeable future as constitutional. Hmm. All right. Well, interesting for sure. Uh, we'll have a link to uh, stories on that in the show notes. Uh, my story this week comes from uh, Ars Technica. This is uh, written by Kari Johnson over at uh, Wired.com. And um, it's uh, titled, The Movement to Hold AI Accountable Gains More Steam. And this article uh, starts off with um, New York City's council, who evidently last month adopted a law that requires audits of algorithms used by employers in hiring or promotion. Uh, says this law is the first of its kind in the nation and it requires employers to bring in outsiders to assess whether an algorithm exhibits bias based on sex, race, or ethnicity. And employers must also tell job applicants who live in New York when artificial intelligence plays a role in deciding who gets hired or promoted. Ben, you and I have spoke multiple times about uh, issues with algorithms uh, unfairly uh, or being unable to recognize uh, people of color, for example, with facial recognition sure. things. We've heard stories of uh, people uh, being unfairly judged when trying to buy a home or rent an apartment or or things like that. So seems as though some municipalities are taking notice and, and they want to get some outsiders to take a look. What do you think of this? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's encouraging what New York City is doing. I think the key thing is they're looking for independent, non-biased auditors. So maybe those are people in the tech industry um, who aren't directly connected to the companies involved here or, you know, people who work for civil liberties organizations. You know, maybe for my sake, throw in a few academics in there. Um, (laughs) We always love uh, to get our perspective. I think that's very promising. You know, the issue is there really hasn't been oversight for these algorithms they're used, and then we do post hoc research and realize that they have these biases, mm-hmm. these racial biases, biased, um, you know, on the basis of, of sex as well. So it is promising that at least in in this city, there's an effort to uh, put a spotlight on these algorithms to see if they're living up to their promise and if they're discriminatory. And we're seeing that in uh, Washington as well with various proposals coming out of Congress. You know, the issue right now is. This is narrowly confined to New York City. You know, it's not going to help the rest of the 330 million people living across the country in Mm -hmm. in other jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. I think we might see similar legislation in big cities across the country. Yeah. Big progressive cities where there is this backlash to the use of artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. So I think that New York City could be a model, but it's certainly not going to be widely applied so that it, you know, applies in every single jurisdiction. Yeah. I think the end game is really the Bittner proposal, <laughs> which is to have a federal agency like the FDA or, you know, like the 
National Transportation Safety Board or something that has the authority to review these algorithms before they go, you know, on the market. Um, so they have to be approved. Uh, Ahead of time rather than reactively. Exactly. Now, do I think that's going to happen in the short term? No. But that's what this movement, I think, is building up to. And the more we hear about biases among these algorithms, maybe that will inspire legislators, lawmakers, um, at all levels of government to take a second look at this. So I think that's the goal here. And this article does point out that there are some members of Congress who are working on a bill that would require this sort of evaluation at a national level when dealing with things like healthcare or housing or, or education and report back to the FTC Um, They also point out that three of the FTC's five members support stronger regulations of algorithms and that the White House actually put out an AI Bill of Rights recently. So it seems like there's some momentum here. Um, Also in this article, they spoke with uh, Julia Stojanovic, who's an associate professor at NYU and served on the New York City Automated Decision Systems Task Force. And uh, she points out that uh, this auditing, in her opinion, is flawed because it only applies to gender or race. Right. And they've pointed out that, like, some of these hiring things have had sort of nonsensical judgments. Like, they'll they'll score you on what software program you created your resume in or what font you use or— <laughs> Comic um, Sans, negative 1,000, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, but as I was reading this, I was actually thinking about that. Like, if I was just hiring someone, you know, no algorithms involved, a resume lands on my desk and they formatted their resume in Comic Sans or, you know, they formatted the resume in like one of those those um, ransom note fonts. Yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> or, like so, or some spooky Halloween font or something like that. Well, I'm going to pass some judgment on that, I right. think. And is that unreasonable for me to do? I I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for things like that, I, I'm I'm kind of okay with it. I do think that this person makes a good point that it shouldn't uh, only be limited to race and sex. I mean, they talk about things like people's sexual orientation, gender identity also being an area of potential bias. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true. Certainly there could be biases introduced as part of artificial intelligence that relate to socioeconomic factors, and that isn't fair as well. You know, if we're talking about the font or the program that's used, I don't have an enormous problem except that it indicates that some non-human is is reviewing these applications. Yeah, and I suppose, like, if I'm using the— if, if I'm get, So let's just play out a, a nutty uh, hypothetical here. If I'm using the most expensive word processor in the world— does that mean I get bonus points as opposed to the person who's using the free open source tool that's available to anybody, right? Should I be able to buy my way into a better rating when my resume is being uh, evaluated by an algorithm? Yeah, and then to further game this out, what happens when people start trying to game the system? So mm. you get information on how the algorithm works and you pay to use the elite word processing ser- uh, service to right, right. bump yourself up a few points. <laughs> right, so so there's a business opportunity here. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, mm. these are things that you do have to think about. You know, yeah. if we're going to be using artificial intelligence, I—, I I, I think there are biases that could be problematic in the right circumstance. Yeah. On first glance, you know, I, I'm fine having um, a robot judge that Comic Sans sucks rather than <laughs> the actual, you know, hiring person in, in HR. Yeah. 
but that, I, in the abstract. Yeah, yeah. I suppose there's no downside to having someone from the outside have a look at this. I mean, I you know, people are always. I mean, it does uh, introduce friction and it can slow things down and it, and it adds cost and all those things are legitimate concerns. Um, but it seems to me like it's such early days with algorithms still that uh, having an outside look on this sort of thing is is probably a good thing. Um, I will point out also that uh, another thing that caught my eye in this article, uh, they're talking about a forthcoming report by a private nonprofit who call themselves the Algorithmic Justice League. Oh, that is brilliant. We got to get somebody on the show from the Algorithmic Justice League. I know. And then I can't wait to see the movie when it comes out. <laughs> right, yeah. right, right. The movie. Yeah, exactly. Um, but evidently, I mean, they are players in this space. Uh, they they had an a influential audit back in 2018 that found that facial recognition algorithms work best on white men and worst on women with dark skin. Oh, so Shocker. There you yeah, go. There exactly. you go. So cool name. Uh, but it sounds like they are actually doing some uh, pretty important work there. Absolutely. So we'll have to, we'll have to uh, ask our producer, Jen, to uh, see if we can get someone from the AJL on the show to uh, find out more about what they're doing. All right, that is my story this week. Of course, we will have a link to that in the show notes as well. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then, you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills, all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Tiago Enrique. Uh, he is from Cyber Insurance Provider Coalition, and we discussed uh, some of the rapidly changing elements of cyber insurance. Here's my conversation with Tiago Enrique. So we find ourselves in a market that is having a lot of demand. We have seen a lot of customer growth and companies that are just finding having cyber insurance, either one, extremely useful for them um, because of the protection and coverage that they get, but also because of all the tooling that we provide when it comes to the policy. Or number two, we're also starting to see that a lot of companies are dependent on having cyber insurance to be able to close some contracts uh, with other customers that they, they have as well. Yeah, it seems to me, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, that there's really been a bit of recalibration over the past year or so. A lot of the insurance providers uh, have a better idea of exactly what they're signing up for. And so rates and coverages have uh, have shifted uh, quite a bit over the past year or so. Is, is that accurate? That is very accurate. Uh, and I, I think it's still something you're going to see over the next couple of months, because whether we like it or not, cyber insurance is still a very young product. 
And we're still learning. The reality is we're still learning. We're learning how to price for risks, what sort of risks we want to cover and can cover, and also how we can best help our customers uh, actively reduce those risks. Because it's not just, that's a big difference between cyber insurance and other types of insurance. You know, typically you buy a policy, you put it on a shelf and you hope you don't have to touch it again, because if you do, it means you have a claim. But for cyber insurance to work, we need to be in constant communication with our policyholders. We need to be active scanning them and telling them about issues we're finding, telling them how to protect themselves. It, it's not just a one-off as other policies for car insurance or health insurance typically is. You know, I, I think about something like insurance for a building or even a homeowner's policy where, you know, if I have uh, fire extinguishers, if I have sprinklers, those sorts of things, that might lead to some sort of discount in my coverage because my home is well-equipped. Do we have similar sorts of things where if I can, you know, check some boxes for the insurance providers that we're putting certain best practices in place that that may lead to a better rate? We we can and we do, but it's not just checkboxes. We are a data-driven company, and that's a little bit of what's different about Coalition, is that we definitely ask the customer to fill out the form, but our objective as a company is, and this is my team's responsibility at Coalition, is when we get policy requests from the underwriting platform. So blah.com is asking us for a policy. In three minutes, my team is going to go out and try and find absolutely everything we can about blah.com. What are their IP addresses? What are their domains, subdomains? Which technologies are you running? Which hosting providers are you using? Uh, can we find any documents or pieces of news uh, about this company? And we're going to build an entire payload with all of this data and try and understand how risky or not risky this company is to try and understand if we want to sell your policy and then price it based on all of these millions of data points that we collect as well. So the checkbox part is just one piece of the puzzle. Right. So, I mean, does that kick off kind of a collaborative process where you come back to them and say, listen, you, you may not be even aware that, that you have some of these underlying issues here. Let's engage. A hundred percent. This is our daily conversations with policyholders. So uh, one of the issues that we've seen in, in cybersecurity is, of course, shadow IT or IT that the customer doesn't even know they have or that have a dependency on. So a hundred percent, when we find uh, critical issues, we'll either make them contingent and we have a team of security analysts that essentially literally jump on the phone and they will work with the customer, with the potential policyholder on trying to get those issues fixed, on trying to get the right firewall rules in place, whatever it is, the contingencies or issues we found that would stop us from selling a policy or that even raising the price based on those contingencies, we will work with them. And of course, there is a certain point sometimes where the collaboration stops, where the customer goes, doing this change would be too big for us, we'd rather just pay the extra premium on the policy for it. But it is indeed a collaboration um, that goes on uh, between us, the customer, and the broker as well. The broker is a critical piece for this to work. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about ransomware, which is certainly uh, grabbing the headlines these days. I mean, I think a lot of folks think about their cyber insurance policy as being a bit of a backstop against ransomware. On the provider side of things, how do you approach that? So we are absolutely not a replacement for any best practices against ransomware. We actually, on our underwriting process, always give recommendations for people to improve their security. So if you have something to remotely manage your computers, like RDP, Kaseya, ConnectWise, we always tell you to put them behind the VPN, with MFA, with the right protection in place. So 
we are definitely the last milestone. When everything else fails, that's what the insurance piece is there for. Uh, specifically around ransomware, we've seen a decline on frequency and you know the amount of payments we've had to do with ransomware, especially around the way we're approaching insurance, where we're trying to underwrite using data. So we're writing safer businesses. And the businesses that we're not writing, we're still helping them to go to a safer place than they were before they contacted us. So we've seen a decrease in uh, severity and frequency as well. In generally, uh, you know, we as, as an insurance provider, we don't like to pay for ransomware. We always, of course, in the end, it's a policyholder decision. And this is actually something I think, you know, many in the infosec industry don't understand is that it is not the insurer's decision. We are there to pay if the policyholder decides that they want to pay, but we can merely advise. And we always advise on having really good backup practices. Let's make sure that we can do that restoration. Let's make sure that, you know, well, we can get it back up and running without paying the ransomware. But in the final decision comes down to the policyholder and their counsel. If they decide to pay, we have to pay. But for us, as an insurance company, we always prefer not to pay. Are there things that, that people often overlook when they're putting together an insurance policy or when they're coming, you're starting that process? Are there, are there parts of it that, that people don't always consider? We've seen a couple. Uh, one, uh, remote management software, what sort of software they're using to do remote management of their laptops, their machines. We saw an increase in remote management software exposures uh, when COVID started. So that's definitely one of the factors. The other one would be backups. We've seen a couple of situations where policyholders will attest that they have backups, even offline backups, but they haven't tested restoration. And then when that ransomware hits and they're going to try and restore, the backups are corrupt or something happened and the backups aren't actually working. So those would be the two most common factors we've seen as failures, air quotes, um, that people, you know, uh, have a misstep sometimes. Yeah. You know, I, I know that uh, your boss, uh, Coalition CEO, uh, recently had a meeting at the White House uh, with President Biden. Can you give us a, a little insight into that? What sort of policy things were discussed there? Uh, ransomware was the big topic. Um, you know, the government wants to understand how they we can help stop ransomware. And, you know, we we believe that it has to be a collaboration between public and private sector. And we're certainly doing our part to try and help as much as possible. Uh, one of the things that we're trying to do is, uh, because we make money selling insurance, it means all the technology that we can build as a technology company, we can give away for free. And we're going to continue to give away for free. We... Uh, you know, as I mentioned to you before, one of the problems we see constantly is customers not knowing which assets they have exposed. Same thing applies to their vendors. You'll work with an MSP or an IT vendor that has privileged access to your computers. We look at your company, your company is secure, but in reality, your IT vendor is not, and you don't know about that. IT vendor gets hacked and hackers then pivot into your machines. So what we were trying to do to, to stop that is essentially we are giving away our attack surface monitoring tool. And that's just one of many tools we'll be making available for free to any organization. They don't even need to be a policyholder. And it was a commitment we made at the White House that we are going to build security tools and give them away for free for every organization to protect themselves. Specifically, this attack surface monitoring tool is available for free on control.coalitioninc.com and any organization can use it. I can see organizations being a little reticent to have someone uh, like you, you take a look, you know, behind, behind the, the curtain, right? 
But at the same time, it strikes me that as much as they may be hesitant about that, on a certain level, that's an opportunity as well, because you have sort of a, an independent third party coming in to take a second look at things. And, and I would imagine for most organizations, that can be a bit of an eye-opener. For sure. And the other parties for free. Like, this is actually something that people don't take into account, and it's quite important. We would do this for free. We help customers for free because lots of organizations, especially in our SME uh, revenue band, don't even have an IT team, don't have a security budget. So that we're able to offer these services, including calls with our security analysts for free to help them step up their security is really, really important. And one of the things I always advise our customers is don't lie on your insurance policy. Don't tell us that you have some security control in place that you don't. Because one, when a claim happens, we're going to find out about it because we'll do a forensic investigation and we'll see it. And number two, we're not here to fight you. We're here to literally help you level up. It benefits you. It benefits us. So, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that, that I think that collaborative approach is, is uh, innovative. And I, I can't help thinking that, you know, this is a the future of how this space is going to have to function. A hundred percent. Again, everything that we're trying to do, it's not going to work if it's not a collaboration between us, the customers, and the broker. All three parties are extremely important in making this work. Be it because, you know, we scan all of our policyholders multiple times per month. So when a new vulnerability comes out, we send you a notification of it. When you're the customer... You need to make sure that you read that notification and you address the issues we found on the notification. If the person that was responsible for security leaves the company, the broker needs to make sure he's aware of it and updates our records so that we can contact the new person. So everyone plays a part in, in this triangle, essentially, of trying to solve cyber risk. What do you think? That was really interesting. I mean, it's still such a new field um, mm. that there really is space for emerging organizations to offer novel advice on cyber insurance just because I think we're not quite sure how to, to price it yet. And we're still, you know, in the early stage of other contractors, businesses looking at an organization to see whether they have cyber insurance. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I just think the this entire field of study is in its infancy. And so, you know, we're, I think we're going to learn a lot over the next few years. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's tough on both sides. You know, the folks who want to provide this, things are changing so quickly, but also for the folks who have to buy it, who are obligated to buy it, you know, regulated to buy it, uh, it's hard to plan out what your costs are going to be because it's all in a state of flux right now. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, again, our thanks to Tiago Enrique from Coalition for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past, Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. 
SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>